There's all that kind of communication that not only can improve what happens in electric and what happens in water, but also just such better communication with your customer. And, and that's all good stuff. This is episode 247 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Ken Demlo, sales director of Newcom Technologies, joins Christopher this week to talk about several topics. In addition to discussing engineering and design and how it relates to telecommunications networks, Ken shares how Newcom is taking advantage of new technology to offer communities the best results. Christopher and Ken also get into the details of Smart Grid and some benefits and uses that you might not necessarily think of right away. The guys spend some time on what happened in Nashville when Ken worked on the Google Fiber project. He shares his inside perspective. You can learn more about Newcom at nucomtech.com. Now here's Christopher with Ken Demlo from Newcom Technologies talking about engineering and design, smart grids, and pole drama in Nashville. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm speaking with Ken Demlo, the sales director of Newcom Technologies. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Ken, you're one of my favorite people at these trade shows. We're here in we're here at the Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities, and and as you know, I've I contrived an excuse to have you on because I think you're a fun person to talk to. Well, thank you. That's better than I deserve, but thank you. Um, so I think we're going to start with just a, a brief explanation of what Newcom Technologies does. Well, we are telecommunication engineers, and that's how we started twenty some years ago. What's kind of cool about Newcom is that design is design, but we design very well. But then how you, uh, uh, what you do with that design and how you make it usable uh, is where we've done a lot of excelling. So that we like did all of our work in, in our design work in CAD and then converted it into GIS. Well, that's something that can be used in different phases for projects. And so our customers have said, wait a minute, we want that. And so we do that. We do mapping. Um, those kind of ancillary services, field survey work, all that kind of stuff that goes along with having really good, um, really good uh, engineering. And so the way uh, municipal networks or, or small providers might come across you is trying to figure out where they're going to put their outside plant. Exactly. So if they're thinking, okay, we uh, we know we need to do something, um, where that would go, uh, how that would be, uh, aerial versus underground, uh, what impediments there could be, uh, we work through designing all that, and then where would the cabinets go, how are the splits going to be, how all, is that re- how all that's recorded. So yeah, we have to do all of that stuff as part of our design. In a recent conversation with Eric Lampland, we talked about the importance of getting this in a mapping program. ESRI is what you guys use. That's an industry standard. Why is that important? You know, that's, uh, that's a big deal because a lot of uh, engineering work is just we'll design it, we'll put it on a static platform, like we'll print you a map. Or we'll put it in CAD, which CAD's a good uh, design tool, but then the end user, it's it's static. They just have that done, and then they can refer back to it, but they can't really change it. Doing it in Esri, then if they want to add a section, we can. it's very easy just to add onto that section. Or if there's something they want to layers, change. The layers. The power of layers. Yes. Or if they want to... Um, do how they keep their splits and how they their, their splicing and how they are able to see it and change those kinds of things. If it's dynamic, then they can change it and use it and adapt it along the way. If not, they got it once and then that's it. And they and then the last part of that, Chris, is that also there's these tools out there called fiber management systems, and those fiber management systems allow you to uh, 
like put in OTDR readings and see where a problem is. The trucks don't have to drive as far. They don't have to go try to find something. Right. This is like if there's a problem with the fiber, you shine a laser down and it tells you how far to to wander to, to get to that problem. Yeah. And if you put that into a fiber management system, you know exactly where to go. You know exactly. So the trucks can go there and not have to go hunt for it. And you can trace the fiber all the way through the end. Um, you can trace it through the splices. You can change your splices. Those are all tools that you only have if you use a mapping system like Esri. It, CAD, you can't do that. A piece of paper on the wall, you can't do that. So it provides much more management functions in a dynamic instead of static platform. Okay. Now that we know what you do, let's talk about some of the stuff you've been talking about. Today, you were talking about Smart Grid here at the IAMU uh, conference. What's the deal with Smart Grid? So Smart Grid is this cool, important idea that people have a hard time even defining. Well, I think a lot of people are immediately thinking meter reading, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And that's where everybody starts. And the reason people start there is because if you have um, smart meters, meters that can um, send information back to you instead of you having to go do a meter reading, you can quantify how much does the person cost, or you can quantify um, how many truck rolls does it take to, to, to do that. or you know th Those are very quantifiable things, and so people can say, this is how much it'll cost, this is how much my money will save, and that's an easy place to say, okay, that's Smart Grid. Well, it's a tool in Smart Grid. But the reason we got involved in Smart Grid, Chris, is because what Smart Grid is is it's it's communication. It's data. It's it's sending information back and forth. It's communicating with your customer. It's 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 understanding what's happening in your network. That all is telecommunications. And so we got involved in it because of the telecommunication side. Now, through the years, we've gotten more involved in helping set it up, helping define um, uh, how it's going to be laid out, how the data is going to flow. The biggest thing is that the industry, by necessity, because what was available you know, 20 years ago, they've gone to, if you're going to have a smart meter, you're going to have a, an RF system, a radio frequency system that, that sends the information back that way, not using fiber. And that's something that's been an issue of mine for a decade now of saying, if we have fiber, we should be using the fiber. I think in a lot of cases, what happens is you have a, a short wireless hop to a collection point, right? So they're not using like radio frequency all the way back to the central office. Some are. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But others are like Tantalus's products, I think, are often doing a local collection and then yes. using local um, fiber to get, you know, out of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. that's So the most common is to send the radio frequency back to um, a collector somewhere, and then you'll have certain number of collectors, um, depending if the, if the community is small enough and if the, there's not too many hills or trees or that sort of thing, then they some do send it all the way back to the office. But And, you know, that's a shame because... If you have fiber and you can run, you can use fiber for all of it, that's a good starting point for we're going to have these meters. They're going to send the information back over fiber. That's much more secure. It's much more efficient. It's much faster. I think a lot of people might immediately think, well, that seems like overkill. I mean, if you have a, a, a rate payer who's on your electric system, who's also going to be paying for internet access, for television, then you can justify dragging a fiber to it. Can you really justify dragging a fiber to a home uh, just to do these automated services? No, that's a good point. Right now, if you were saying, I'm going to go pay for fiber just to bring uh, the information back from a meter, that, that really is not justifiable, no. It's when you can say, okay, we can bring back the meter data, and then we can also offer the other services. And then, you know, there's going to be a lot more coming 
uh, of pieces of smart grid and what what can be done with communication with the the ratepayer um, with how you can exchange data back and forth those things are all coming but as far as can you actually say that will pay for fiber um, not really so I think what you're saying then is hey if you've got the fiber there do it use it yes. don't don't also use RF and you know as an anti-pollution kind of person I would also say like yeah like let's keep it off the public airwaves if we can yeah so it's it's if you have the fiber and if you have the fiber to use to do and and you can do multiple things with it um it's crazy not to do that too um i i know of people or I know of communities who have put in fiber and have used an rf system on top of that to bring their data back why i don't think we really know you know you're talking about the pollution and that sort of thing um so if we have something that just anything we can clean up why wouldn't we and right. that way we can I think we're going to slide into the final topic, the one that perhaps people are really most interested in, because nobody really knows a lot of the details, um, this issue with what really happened in Nashville and what happened with Google. Um, But before we get there, let's just finish up on smart grid. What are some of these other things? Like, Let's just talk about a practical example rather than in theory of why having fiber throughout your electric plant is going to not just be nice, but actually save money and really be beneficial to the community. I'll take the easy one first. If you're going to have fiber and you're going to have an RF system, you have to pay for both. And so you have to pay for the RF system because you have to pay for the collectors. You have to pay for the software to do all that. You have to um, pay for the module that's going to send the data out. Um, All that stuff is stuff you have to pay for. If you're paying for fiber to go there too, you, you really are paying for two full systems. Well, in a discussion today, in the in the sessions where we're, we're, we are today, one of the manufacturers of the system that can take fiber all the way to the meter, um, they said that what they are working for is having a equal money. You, if you pay what you would pay for the RF system um, is equal to what you would pay to connect to the meter in the fiber system. Well, if that's even money, if you have the fiber and you pay for the RF system, you're paying double. So that's one thing. Another, uh, if you have the fiber, um, obviously, whether it's RF or whether it's uh, the data's come back over fiber, you know, the savings you'll have in truck rolls, the saving you'll have in, in people and all that kind of stuff, um, those are all areas where you can save money. Let's just flesh that out for a second. And, and so you're talking about saving truck rolls. You're talking about right now, electricity goes out on the grid. Um, your, your ordinary system, you might be sending a person to drive along and watch the wires and try to physically see where the outage is. That's the way it works. Having yeah. these meters, you it gives you either a grid sense or at the very least, it, it dramatically narrows the, the areas where you have to look for it. So that's a big savings. It is. It's a savings in time. It's a savings in, 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 in your in labor. Um, you know, and, like, and so the longer your customers are out, the more angry they are. So mm-hmm. you can get them on faster. I mean, there's, there's savings there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ideally, then you have dramatically less overtime costs. It, well, absolutely. Right now, in the present system, um, when a meter goes down, um, basically they have to wait for their customer to call them to tell them it's down most of the time. Um, whereas in these systems, the meter has what's called a last gasp. That's actually an industry term where it uh, it actually sends out a message saying, I'm dying. <laughs> I really, I wish I could have written that message. Like, <laughs> you know, you actually want people to, to, to get that make it that message and just laugh. Yeah, because right? yeah. like, it could be funny. It really could. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. So, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but then, it, so the thing is, if you have uh, the, the meters telling you we're out, then they can actually send, a, you know, a call or send a text message to their customers 
customer saying, we know you're out. Here's what we're doing. But if, but for example, if you have like a hundred meters go out and you can look around and, and you can see those like in GIS, you can see where those are out. That will also probably tell you what the problem was. Um, mm-hmm. or at least it'll give you a real good idea of what the problem was. Well, again, that, that's just money savings, right? Cause then, right. cause then if you can, as opposed to having the person driving around trying to find it, if you have, a, if you can say, oh, well, it's, it's this, uh, transformer went out or you can, this line had to have gone out. So go there, you know, those are all ways that with technology, um, you just save time. But, you know, then also with meters, um, and with smart meters and with being able to have the data going back and forth, you know, when you, the ability to see like, uh, just take a water meter, for example, we've been talking about electric, but, you know, take a water meter, for example, if it's, if you have a smart meter and there's a, uh, there's spikes in the usage, then, you know, they could call or send a text message to the, the homeowner and say, hey, look, something's yeah. going wrong. Yeah, either either you left the hose running or congratulations on that new pool you just built. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you really shouldn't take that long of showers. Right. You really shouldn't. Right. But but being able to diagnose that uh, right now, uh, the, the money that can save, or you know, the, the customer and the customer service of that. I mean, there's all that kind of communication that not only can improve what happens in electric and what happens in water, but also just such better communication with your customer. And, and that's all good stuff, you know? Right, Absolutely. So we were having a really great conversation earlier about what is going on in Nashville and one of the challenges that Google faced uh, in terms of getting on the polls. You have some firsthand experience having dragged your family there in an RV over a mountain mm-hmm. in order to be a part of this project. Yes, yes. We actually lived in Nashville for a while in an RV. Uh, we did survive coming over the mountains, which could have gone either way. This but- is a man that really wanted to be a part of the Google project. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So Google... When they went into Nashville, I think we all hope for, and, and I know they did, but I think everybody hopes for that everything's going to be smooth and everybody's going to want the same things and all that. Right. I mean, just to set the stage, Google has been in several cities by now. They've they've done different things. They've had tried different approaches. Nashville is like seventh, eighth mm-hmm. on the order of maybe communities that they're looking at. They've been doing it for several years. And just as a, a final note, you're going to be sharing with us things that are public knowledge already that people yes. may not have seen, but you're not really breaking any news on this show or sharing anything that one couldn't find elsewhere. I'm consolidating it from a firsthand perspective. Okay. Yeah. Consolidating the, the news. But I think it all goes back to even when Google first decided they were going to do Google Cities and, you know, 1,100 communities said, we want it to be us. You know, I think that set the stage for thinking, okay, this is all going to be wonderful in every step of the way. And, you know, I think Google found out it's more complicated than that. I mean, there, there are a lot of factors that can go into to what can happen. And, and in Nashville, for example, when Google first went in, the local uh, ut- electric utility is Nashville Electric. And the reason why Nashville Electric is so important is because they own uh, most of the poles. They own most of the poles. AT&T owns some poles. And I think Comcast owns some. But the vast majority are owned by Nashville Electric. And this is actually why Google picked... I mean, a lot of the cities Google went to were municipal electrics that they owned the poles because Google didn't want to have to deal with a hostile pole entity, mm-hmm. which I think would be a great non or great uh, science fiction uh, enemy, sort yeah. of um, antagonist. Yeah, I think, it would, <laughs> I, think I agree completely. 
So going in, you know, thinking, okay, so we have the, the polls, we know who owns the polls, they really want us here, so this is all going to be streamlined, uh, it's all going to be easy, and we're all going to be able to, to just, you know, go hook up, you know, hook onto the polls and all that. By the way, Nashville is, has a very high rock table, and so it really kind of had to mostly be aerial, because the, the buried is really tough there, because there's so much rock. Putting fiber on poles is cheaper anyway, but... Especially when there's rock in the ground. Especially when there's rock in the ground. So... When they went into Nashville Electric, um, thinking, okay, uh, we're, we're going to be able to streamline the process. We're going to be able to put the, uh, uh, we're going to be, atta- be able to attach to the poles. We're talking about over 100,000 poles here. So this is, you know, not that they'd have to use, not that they were going to use all those, but but it's still a lot of poles that they're going to have which, to attach to. Which is important from multiple perspectives, because if it was 500 poles or 1,500 poles, there's actually shot clock rules. There are obligations that others on the pole have to move and do their their activities within a certain time period. At this level of poles, it's kind of anything goes. You got to work it out yourself. Yeah. And, and working it out yourself and working it out with them is, you know, I think, again, everybody, I think, hopes that process is going to be easy. But you've got several things at play there. So one is what are the attachment rules, which means what does the, the local pole owner, what, what are their rules for you to be able to attach? Um, and that's a big deal because, I mean, it's things like um, how many feet do you have to be below the electric? Um, how many feet do you have to be above the ground? And, and is that, how, much, how much is that on a sidewalk or how much is that over a street? I mean, there's, there's all those factors of, of here's who can attach, and then even can the pole take another attachment? And if the pole can't take another attachment, that means you have to put in a different pole that's either taller or stronger. I mean, so, so there's all those things that go into play. And when they got right into it with Nashville Electric, there ended up having to be a lot of replaced poles. And there had to be, uh, there were a lot of rules that they had to abide by that... I think they just didn't expect to have to abide by, or it was more complicated, or it was more difficult. Um, and, and, you know, you don't necessarily know that going in, because you can look at poles and say, okay, well, it's a lot of poles, good, that's cheaper. Well, not if you have to replace every pole at, you know, 10, 15, 20 grand a pop. Right. If you and I were going to go build in an area that might have a hostile private company or a co-op or, you know, munis, I mean, it kind of in some in some ways, pole owners act like pole owners. They're trying to push their costs off on someone else. And the general industry standard is the new guy pays for everything. Mm -hmm. And so one might expect going into an arrangement with a with a hostile or neutral pole owner, you're going to have to replace a bunch of poles. When you're going in with a friendly pole owner, you're kind of thinking, I'm going to get a break. I'm not going to have to replace that many poles. And maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't. Either way, there's still a lot of poles that had to be replaced. Yeah. You were saying that there's a lot of attachments out there. Oh, yeah. there In any given pole, there can be six attachments already. Six communication attachments. Yeah, just the, that's just your cable and telephone type folks. Yeah. And so if you think about it, so you have the electric at the top, then you got a certain number of feet, and then you got your communication attachments. And if you've got six communication attachments, and they all have to be so many inches apart uh, or so like a foot apart or whatever they have to be a certain distance apart well then you get down to or do we have enough distance uh, above the ground do we have enough distance you know and pole attachment agreements and the rules you have to go by for construction we call it make ready make ready engineering um what you have to go by there there was a lot that had to be taken into consideration um there was a lot that had to be done and changed and that ended up being a very friendly owner but with with a lot of rules 
And so that ended up being a pretty substantial process. Um, then, so, so working through that process, and the way that process works is that you, uh, you, you go survey what's in the poll. And, and again, the, the person who wants to attach has to do this. So it's only 118,000 polls or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You, you go look at every poll. You do. You go look at every poll and you measure all those things of already. Course. So, so yeah. what's existing, you <laughs> measure everyone. You? Those, yeah. You measure everyone, those things that's existing. And then you say, okay, so here's all the things that are existing. Here's where we'd have to attach. And here's the changes that have to be made to be able to attach to meet your rules. And then you submit that. And then the poll owner says yes or no. They either say, yes, we see that and agree or no, we want you to change this. And anyway, so that ended up being, uh, you know, when that's, a hundred polls, you know, that, that's a job when it's a hundred thousand polls, that's intimidating. <laughs> but anyway, so there's a poll in someone's backyard. It's in an easement, but it's in their backyard. It's inside their fence. So you have to go arrange with them. You know, again, when you're talking about a hundred polls, that's annoying when it's a hundred thousand polls, that's massive coordination. <laughs> right. It actually seems like, I mean, if, if Greek tragedies and Greek myths are being written today, you know, like one of our heroes would be stuck in a purgatory where they were just doing poll analysis all day. I like the science fiction route you were taking. I do. I like that. So, 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 yeah, so you have that. So, so that, that was a difficult process. Um, that, and so that was the first kind of set of stuff to have to deal with. Then they got into, who is going to make the moves of those six communications? And so, like one of them is AT and T, another one's Comcast, and then you know, so so you go down this list of who's there, and then the question is, who is going to actually do the actual move of the communication of their communication line? Now, the argument from like um, the perspective of the communication company is. But we don't want somebody else to move our stuff because what if they mess it up? Right. And also, I mean, there's also some game in terms of just we want to move our stuff because we can take longer. We can obstruct. We don't want to make it easy on anyone to come in and compete with us. It's all competition. I mean, it is. And, and so, you know. So I would say, you know, there's, there's, there's legitimate and there's kind of like also legitimate, but not something you want to play up because and, and, it's not very favorable to your position. Yeah, not something that, that you want to have on the newspaper as much. Right. Yeah. When you start talking about who's going to do those moves and who's gonna, who will actually do that, again, if you're dealing with 100 polls, that's some difficult coordination. When you're dealing with 100,000 polls, just think of the nightmare of that. I mean, if, if you say, okay, we're going to go do these 50 polls over here, and we need the, all six of you to be there on the same day at the same time, you know, and then it rains or, you know, I mean, whatever. <laughs> then I mean, it rains. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that, so, so that became a next a logistical difficulty, but it even got a little tougher. And where it got tougher was that the Nashville um, city council to try to make that easier passed city legislation that said that we were going to go to a one-touch system, which means that they would have an authorized um, company who would do all the moves on a given poll. That That is efficient. I mean, it's more efficient because then, then you've got one path of saying, okay, you are going to go do all of them and go down through here. One of the things to note is it's not just efficient from a perspective of the companies that are involved. It's also a lot of these polls, you have to like move traffic and you have trucks that are in traffic. So, you know, if you're doing that six times, that's a lot of traffic jams and problems you're creating. So there's other reasons aside from telecommunications reasons to want to minimize touching. And you got to remember that these are electric poles is really what they are. They're, they're actually electric and they're just hanging comms on them. So, you know, from the electric department's perspective, what if they take a certain section underground or what if they know that they have or say if a pole starts to fall or, you know, any of that kind of thing. 
well, if you have this path of, okay, we're going to go do this section, but the electric department has to go out and change three poles before you get there. I mean, there's this just whole logistics that's just kind of crazy. So the, the city passed that legislation, one-touch legislation, while um, some of the uh, providers, uh, AT&T, Comcast, they said, no, we're not going to allow that. And, and then so we're going to, they, they went to court to say, mm-hmm. no, you can't do that. And that also became a concern of Nashville Electric because they had contracts with all of them. And so if you already had a contract with somebody that says, here's the rules for the next 10 years, and the city says, no, we're going to change the rules, well, what about those contracts? And so mm-hmm. that's all now in court, and um, we won't really know what's going to happen until that all flows its way through court. And lastly, Chris, so the, the other question with that is, is, it's even a question of who has jurisdiction over that. I mean, is that the uh, Federal Communications Commission has jurisdiction? Is it the state? Is it the, I mean, those are all questions that are have to be so- solved in court, and who knows mm-hmm. how long that'll take. I think that those were those were the big showstoppers, right? That's really the. There was also added problems with there was some egos involved, both with like Google and the people that Google hired, where they all had a sense of we do things our way, and I think you know this is something that the telephone and um, and cable companies and everyone who's been in this field have said for a long time. Google, you don't get it. You're not going to, you might, everyone might love you, but there's still rules, right? You're going to have to follow the freaking rules. And, and I think that Google and some of its subcontractors or contractors thought that they could get away with not doing some of the rules because they're so powerful. And they found that poll owners also are pretty powerful. Well, contracts are powerful. And <laughs> right. Signatures on papers is powerful. Right. Know? Well, it's nice to live in a society where that's true, frankly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, but, but, you know, when, uh, and and there's a whole kind of confluence of issues. You know, you got political issues, you've got contracts, you've got poll attachment agreements. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of things that that get into this space, and you can't just no one can come in and say, "But we don't want to do that." Right. I mean, it's it's you have to sort those things out, and 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 that's not always a gentle right. Process. And I think you know one of the things, and you know this better than almost anyone. I think when you hear commissioners at the FCC basically saying, well, we'd all have fiber everywhere if it wasn't for cities getting in the way with their dumb rules. Generally, cities aren't even implicated. And let's just say that cities have inefficient rules. It's like the third or fourth problem on the list. I mean, this is polls and it doesn't have to do with city rules. None of this had to do with city rules. Uh, the only city rule that was involved was one that was trying to make it easier. Mm-hmm. And so like, there's just a, a process involved and it's very difficult to build fiber networks. That's one of the reasons why. And I'll, and I'll say, frankly, in my perspective, I think that AT&T, Comcast, these existing providers have found ways to make it as cumbersome as possible. Yeah. And I would just add, so to all listeners, if, if there's anybody who uh, is in, is looking at a fiber project or thinking about a fiber project or has any say in a fiber project. Come to Newcom Tech for Mapping. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> yes. But uh, I would also say that I've been involved in quite a few projects where dealing with the polls uh, has caused big problems. Uh, another one that had nothing to do with Google was uh, there were some uh, folks who were wanting to do a countywide project, and they just assumed they were going to go over the polls, and that's how they costed everything, and that's that's the, the whole plan they had. When they got there, they found a hostile, and it wasn't the city, they found a hostile poll owner, mm-hmm. uh, and that hostile poll owner said, you're just not going to use our polls. Well, and, and they just didn't do the project. So that's one of the things that has to be looked at is, do we want to go aerial? And if we do, can we use the polls we're thinking? And that is that has to determine part of your costs. Right. Well, thank you so much. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. That was Ken Demlo talking with Christopher about a few topics, including telecommunications engineering, smart grids, and Google Fiber in Nashville. Hey, everyone. 
I just wanted to thank you for listening and, and helping out uh, to create a, a stronger internet ecosystem, making sure everyone has high-quality access. Uh, please tell your friends, tell others who might be interested about this show. Uh, if you have a chance to rate us on iTunes, uh, please do. Several people already have. Uh, we really appreciate all of the comments, and we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcasts at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. You can subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the ILSR family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research? Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Break the Bands for the song Escape, licensed through Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 247 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.